It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Today's guest is Nate Looney, urban farmer, army veteran, and owner of Westside Urban Gardens in Los Angeles, California. Nate's company provides consulting services for controlled environment operations, focusing on aquaponic and hydroponic farming methods. He's been involved with the Farmer Veteran Coalition in Northern California and speaks nationwide. Welcome to the podcast, Nate. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, and we're sitting in your backyard and your whole property is basically a giant urban farm is that not true absolutely pretty much everything on this property is edible so um, we're sitting in the backyard and there's corn tomatoes cucumbers uh, all kinds of different stone fruit growing you know you know, stepping distance from my, my door. It's really beautiful. Um, now, I, a few months ago, someone told me that I needed to talk to you and that you should be on the podcast, and I wish I could remember who that was, but, you know, my brain's like a sieve these days. Anyway, I'm really glad that we're here in, and that you invited me to this space because it really is beautiful. Can you just a little more in detail describe this beautiful urban farm for our listeners? Sure. So um, pretty much the entire yard is um, set to be drought tolerant. And uh, so we have a 5,000 gallon water rain reclamation system that uh, offsets our use of city water when it comes to irrigating the crops. So there's a float system in, in one of the tanks. And uh, as long as there's water in the tanks, we'll pull from that to irrigate the yard versus pulling from city water. Uh, and at any given time, we have a variety of crops growing based on the season. Uh, it pr produces enough food to feed myself, uh, another family, and neighbors, plus some. Um, I think I saw a little honor farm stand out there on the side. Do you put that out when you have excess produce? Exactly, exactly. I mean, right now, this time of year, squash are in abundance, mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to pay people to get rid of them. <laughs> uh, so yes. the, the next best thing is to just put a basket on the street saying, here, please take. Nice. And uh, the interesting thing is the first time that I did it, I expected the, all the squash to still be there, and probably about 12 hours later, it was completely gone. And I put a good you know, 10, 15 pounds of squash out there. Wow, that's a lot. And uh, it was all gone. Um, so, you know, in the in the front yard, I definitely try to do cut and come again uh, salad beds. So there's constantly regenerative uh, greens going at all times. Um, and, you know, we have tomatoes. Uh, definitely always incorporate uh, in a IPM. Um, our pest management is all throughout. So, you know, when you pull up to the front of the house, it's a wall of lemongrass. And then on the other side, it's a wall of rosemary. So it, it kind of creates this buffer zone from, from the rest of the, the street to our house. Um, and that helps keep the bugs in balance, in check here. It does. I mean, here's hoping. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> to compare it to. Right. But the amount of, of um, you know, uh, horticultural oil or anything that I'm applying to the plants is minimal right. as far as pest control goes. So I like to think that it's actually working. That's really so. good because there is a lot going on here and you're bordered by homes on all sides and you know there are fruit trees that look really well established even though they are still on the small side. They are producing lots of fruit. We did a quick walkthrough and we saw uh, what looked like Santa Rosa plums is mm -hmm. that what's growing and there's an avocado tree and I'm going to ask you about how this amazing avocado tree that's only three years old and is incredibly healthy and has no tip burn we're going to talk about that in a bit um, there are productive olive trees grapevines 
This is a peach, right? Oh, no, uh, that's an almond. almond tree. We have an almond tree, and it's so beautiful because it's fuzzy. You know, the shells have that fuzzy peach-like look to them, but I've I've only ever seen um, almonds, almond trees bare of their fruit because the squirrels get them. So do you have a squirrel? Do uh, you have any issues with vermin and whatnot and squirrels and all of that here? Fingers crossed this year. <laughs> it good. hasn't been that bad. Okay. This, I mean, it might just be that there's just such an abundance that I'm not noticing it. Last year, uh, there's a white peach tree that's just beautiful over in the corner and um, it was beautifully loaded, and I was waiting, you know, for the fruit to get just perfect to pick it. And as I'm doing the countdown, I started counting down on the number of fruit that I had. Uh-huh. And it got to the point that this tree was complete, went from being completely loaded to there being just one beautiful oh, peach left. Bastards. And it was almost ready, and uh, the day before I was ready to pick it, a squirrel got it. Oh, uh, <laughs> so mean. So that was last year, but this year it seems like uh, the squirrels have been at bay. Um, you know, there weren't any, we didn't have have any um, almonds last year. I think the tree didn't produce as much last year, but this year there's definitely a lot. Okay. And um, even with that, I haven't seen a, a down tick. Okay. The plum tree over there last year, same thing. The squirrels were just, I'd see them on the roof of the next house just having a party yeah. with, with, the, with them. But um, this year they, they've kind of been at bay as well. So maybe um, it's because we had a late, we had a long late spring that might be delaying the onslaught. Exactly. I think it's all it's that and the fact that we had so much rain this winter mm-hmm. that just um, all of the, the trees are producing. And even though this is just one yard, I can't speak for the rest of the neighborhood. And right. so maybe this year the squirrels are just having a feast all across the They're board. enjoying uh, an abundance everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I already had a game plan lined up of how I was going to combat the squirrels this year. Uh-huh. But I haven't had to, to enact that. Okay. Um, you know, I was definitely going to be using a lot of uh, cayenne pepper spray on uh-huh. things and... Uh, do you use any bird netting or anything like that? That was going to also be something that I was going to incorporate on the peach tree because it'd break my heart to lose two seasons of peaches. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I, it hasn't been necessary yet. Um, right. So I'm waiting. If it, if it can, if I can make it through the, through this season without doing it, I absolutely will. But um, yeah. Okay, good. And so I know you have some corn that you're growing as a as a bit of a privacy hedge for your because you live in the back unit of this yeah. property. Yeah. So I, I live in a more or less a tiny home on the pro- on the property, and there's a main house in the front. And uh, my place, it's beautiful. There's um, glass doors, double doors on one side, and uh, another set of double doors on the opposite side. Well, as great as that is for letting light in, it kind of creates a challenge for privacy um, at night. So I got the idea last season to grow um, a row of corn. Mm -hmm. And so as the season goes on, the corn gets taller, it creates this hedge. The other added benefit of it is um, it actually blocks the sun in the summer oh because as as the afternoon hits that sun hits the side of my house and it hits exactly where where my bed is so it kind of superheats (laughs) (laughs) my bed which is 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 on a it's it's a platform bed so i'm really close to the ceiling oh and and heat rises heat rises and so the it's a dual purpose it's also it's creating privacy and it's also kind of climate controlling uh my unit um the thing the great thing is i have central heat and air in the unit um and i don't really feel bad about using it because we're on solar Oh, um, fantastic! So minimal amounts of of draw of electricity from this from the city, and so I I don't really feel bad about running the AC in the summertime. But if I could run it less, um, right. I definitely want to do that. That's great. And out front in the front yard, you've got a few citrus trees and 
our asparagus patch that is just adorable right now. It's very happy and relatively new. Uh, we were talking about asparagus because there's a lot of people who want asparagus, but when they hear about the time commitment it takes, they're like, oh, no, never mind. But you, you had a conversation with your... Uh, landlord about this what was that like yeah I, and I think oftentimes when people farm or garden um, there's it's hard to understand the patience that's required yes. for plants you know if you plant a, a fruit tree it's not going to produce that first year it's going to take some time mm -hmm. and so the same thing with a, an asparagus bed you plant this beautiful asparagus bed and you're expecting to you know be harvesting um, you know the next month and that's not the case at all. You know, you end up with this big patch of bush, you know, chest high bush. And um, the, the thought was that maybe we should just mow this whole thing down, tear it out and put tomatoes in there. And, um, you know, that's when I was like, no, this is a crop that you just have to be patient with it and let it establish itself. And so that was last year. This season we had a very, very short harvest, but it was enough to just get a little taste. Uh-huh, a sampling. And a little sampling. This is the second year? This is the second year. Okay. And so next year I imagine it'll be a really nice harvest. And... Um, the the interesting thing about or the the best the best thing about arugula or asparagus is um, short of weeding it you just forget about it right and just let it do its thing let nature take over and um, you know when the time comes you clear it down and and let it let the shoots come up so. and do you clear yours because there are different schools of thought on that do you clear do you cut yours down in the fall or in the spring before you know do you leave the foliage over winter. Uh, no, I cut I cut it in the um, uh, in in fall. Oh, okay. And, and just let it be. Okay, yeah. and that's that's a uh, it's interesting because I I left mine over winter and the ladybugs would habit they would mate in it so oh. I had this ladybug habitat in my asparagus you know it was brown and dead but I guess because this uh, this is out front you want it to look nice so right. cutting it back makes total sense but. Uh, my asparagus also did die after a couple of years, you know, right around the time, like a year four, mm -hmm. it just it kind of up and died. So I'll never know exactly why that happened, mm. but I, and maybe it's because I pruned in fall or in spring instead of fall. Who knows? Well, well the, the thought for me is, is our spring summer is so unpredictable yeah. with heat that I'd rather like limit the risk of something going wrong on the other end of the season and yeah. just let it go you know let it be and then also because like you mentioned it's in the front yard yeah and um the landscape is set to a an, it's really set to be really nice to walk around in and the beds are set um really in an aesthetically pleasing way yeah but you know when you have those time periods where you say you're letting lettuce go to seed anyone walking down the street is going to be like what's going on in that yard it looks like you know it's weeds. abandoned and yeah. weeds and they're not taking care of it when it's completely controlled right uh so factoring that in i definitely try to keep you know within the aesthetics of the neighborhood yeah so you run west side urban gardens can you tell us what that is about sure uh, so Westside Urban Gardens um, is, is essentially started as an urban farming startup, um, and the concept behind it was we are demographics show that we're moving towards cities versus living in rural environments, and our food demands, you know, match that. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, we were in the middle of a drought in California, and there was an issue with you know providing food. You know, from Central California, uh, the cost of water was so high. So um, I was working on an undergrad business degree, 
and just sort of saw the need for there to be more innovative solutions. And so that's more or less how Westside Urban Gardens came about. But uh, what I do has sort of transformed through time. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started, when I was just bootstrapping, I would go to people's backyards and I was just installing backyard gardens and uh, giving private gardening lessons. And from that, you know, went and got training in controlled environment ag and started doing more hydroponic and aquaponic growing. Uh, and so Westside Urban Gardens started as just, you know, this thing that was, I'm going to do backyard farms and do controlled environments uh, because that's going to be the future of farming and, and has turned into, now that I understand how to do it, I'm t teaching other people how to do it and helping other people grow their own businesses uh, doing urban agriculture. Uh, and, and so essentially what Westside Urban Gardens is, is more or less a concept or a, a direction, you know, um, the value that's, that my company gives is, is empowering other people to grow their own food. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. It's, it's the people who will know how to grow food are the ones who will survive. Exactly. And the, you know, and I was in the military and I very much understand what's in what the importance of being able to survive and, and um, being self-sufficient. And, you know, for example, I was in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. And granted, if a hurricane hit, then there's not much I can do about all this food that, that's you know, in, the, in the ground. <laughs> right. But it made me realize that it's important for you to have your own, um, your, your own stuff, your own survival <clears throat> your stuff. Your own supply. Your own supply of food. Yeah. Um, and, and that's more or less where, where, where that comes from for me. Um, and so, yeah, so the thought is to just empower people to, to grow their own food. There is a lot of vacant land. What you wouldn't think is vacant land is vacant land. Mm -hmm. This entire backyard and front yard were grass. Oh, yeah, you know, which is <laughs> such a waste in California and Los Angeles. If you live where you get 50 inches of rain a year, grass is a great idea, yeah. but not here. Yeah, you know, so it's it's essentially vacant land. Yeah. And, and now, you know, my food budget is, is minimal because mm -hmm. when I'm hungry, I step outside and I hack out some arugula and make a salad. Nice. You know, so. And I have to say that this backyard shares all of these fruit trees with a giant trample. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so there's room, even though they're at a ping pong table. A ping pong table and a trampoline. It's a very active backyard going on here. So your story is really interesting of how you came to gardening. You mentioned a little bit about what you were doing before this, but care to add to it? What brought you to, th to this place? Um... Wow, there are a few things that, that brought me to farming. Uh, before going into farming, you know, I was um, working on an undergraduate business degree. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, I was uh, in real estate. Oh. So I got out the, so I get out the Army, 2009. I get back from Iraq, 2009. You know, we're in the middle of the recession. Yeah. And it's time for me to, to get out the Army. And I decide that I'm going to go into real estate and become a real estate agent. Man, <laughs> that's a rough time. Uh, you know, I don't like to take to pick the easy route ever. No, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, hacked at that for a few years and then decided to go back to school and get my, my undergrad business degree. And uh, during my end of my junior year, I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do, what I was going to do next. And as an older student, I wasn't willing to take on more debt for grad school. And, um, speaking with one of my professors, he was just like, why don't you start your own business? You know, mm -hmm. my, my son, you know, he graduated a year before you and I'm investing in his business instead of sending him to business school because everything that you need to learn, you're going to learn by starting your own business. Exactly. And so obviously I didn't have 
somebody to bankroll my business. Um, but I, I essentially decided that I'm going to start my own business. Okay, so let's figure out what's the direction I want to go in. <clears throat> As we were mentioning earlier, people always have to eat. And mm-hmm. after going through what I went through with real estate, I realized that whatever... Uh, industry I go into has to have some sort of job security no matter what. Yeah. There's two things that people will always have to do. You always have to eat and people are always going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Death was not your, your chosen path. <laughs> I wasn't going to go into the mortuary industry. Uh-huh. So the next bet was food. Um, and then for me, it was kind of a natural fit because my family has a history and, back, and, and background in agriculture. Uh, my dad's side of the family has a farm in Louisiana that's uh, still in operation, but uh, it was started by my grandmother's grandfather. Oh, wow. And uh, so they do corn and soy. I was going to ask, are they commodity farming? They are. They yeah. Are. And it's based on, on the geological location mm-hmm. of, of what's grown around there. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of limits what they're able to grow. Sure. Um, but so that's something that I was like, okay, it's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. I had this rock star of a, of a great-great-grandfather. Um and, you know, that's something that I'd be interested in, in going into. And then also, after being in the military, I realized I was not somebody that was going to sit in an office, mm-hmm. you know, nine to five. I, it's just not in my DNA. Um, and I needed something that allowed me to be out and work with my hands and uh, both be physically and intellectually stimulated. And uh, You were in military police, right? I was military police. Wow. So yeah. that's got to be exciting. It was. Or at least not boring. It was not, it wasn't boring at all. I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved being, uh, being an MP. Um, and the, for me, I'm an adrenaline junkie, so there's nothing like getting in a car chase, you know, uh, there's nothing like trying to get to a, to respond to a, an accident and, you know, be the first vehicle on scene to help whoever there is that needs to be helped. Um, and you know, it was one of those things where I was at a point in my life, I was, uh, 24, 25. And, you know, I was looking at, I'm at, I've been in the army for eight years. I have the choice. I can either stay in and stay till retirement. And I know what my income is going to look like if I do that, or I can get out and I can go work for a local police force. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know what it looks like running after, you know, criminals. I'm fine with that, but am I going to be fine with this in 10 years? Yeah. Am I going to want to still be hopping fences and worrying about all the the things that go with with it, that go with being in in law enforcement? And, you know, an added thing for me was, uh, at the time I was, I was, I was born female. So I was, you know, serving in the military as a woman and Uh that wasn't in line with who I was and, and how I identified for Uh myself. And uh, so, you know, all of those things made it to the point where the opportunity cost of staying in the military became too great. And so it made sense for me to to go my separate ways. And I imagine there was probably even up until this year where I still have days where I wake up in the morning. I'm like, I wish I was still in uniform. Uh, You know, that adrenaline thing is the subject of a lot of movies. I just finally watched American Sniper the other night. It was a long time in coming. And, you know, like um, The Hurt Locker and all Mm -hmm. of those really focus on that, that need to be stimulated in that way. So how does... I don't think of farming as that kind of stimulating, but it certainly keeps you on your toes. You have to pay attention a lot. Well, I think um, with me, it was more like that, that, that excitement Mm -hmm. was almost like a release. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd have these adrenaline dumps and that was, you know, it was was exhilarating. Um, 
And so switching to agriculture meant that, like, I had all this pent-up energy mm -hmm. that needed to be released in some way, you know. So, okay, I'm not running after somebody that's shooting or anything like that, but I need to let go of this energy. Okay, well, there's holes that need to be dug. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, you know, yeah. I, I just had to shift how I was using that energy um, to, to being something more physical. Uh, and, and with soil-based agriculture, it isn't quite life or death. You know, so you kind of have a little bit of buffer time, but when it comes to aquaponics and when you have live fish involved, mm -hmm. um, you know, you do have to sometimes react on a dime. And so that also gives me a little bit of that life that I had back then. Nice. Uh, I'm curious because I, I've, I know that there are a lot of veteran gardening programs at, that you've been involved with at least one, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a really important component that horticultural therapy provides people who have been through things that cause PTSD and that anxiety or the uh, adrenaline rush and all of that. Have you found gardening to be therapeutic in that way? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm... I, I work full-time, but I'm 70% service-connected from, mm -hmm. from the military, uh, disability-connected, uh, disconnected. And that is related to um, PTSD. Mm. And so I'm very well aware of, of how it affected my life um, in my past before I admitted that I had PTSD. Uh -huh. and, and now that I'm aware of how it, it affects me, I, I know that gardening is probably one of the best medicines I could have. Um, you know, something that become, that's so simple for the average person becomes like this mountain of an obstacle for, for a veteran with PTSD. Uh, an example from from my personal experience would be like replying to an email. Mm. So something that would be like it would only need like ten words to say, "Hey, yes, this is what's going to happen." Would might take me two days to do because it was like I was so used to every decision being life and death, ah. and because it didn't translate properly, it was almost impossible for me to send an email. Um, but what I learned is that. My, my mechanism for getting over that was like, okay, well, there's weeds that need to be picked in my backyard. So I'm going to step outside and I'm going to take 20 minutes and I'm going to pick some weeds. And after I'm done picking the weeds, I'm going to go inside and send this email. And somehow that was my mechanism to, to get things done. That's great. Um, you know, there, there are, there's a level of um, aggression that you learn while you're in the military it's mm -hmm. part of being in the military when you're a soldier and there's outlets while you're in the military for that aggression when you're a civilian there aren't any outlets no. for it you know you can't go drill sergeant on the person in front of you for driving bad right <laughs> well just, you can you, you just can't do it out loud <laughs> you can't do it out loud it might put you in right. jail yeah uh but but you know, like I was saying before, that's a perfect time where it's like, huh, I think I need to go plant some trees. Right. And so let me go dig some really big holes and plant some trees or, you know, this whole garden section needs to be turned over and turned into something else. So let me go do that. Yeah. And so for me, farming was definitely a healthy way for me to have an outlet for, for a lot of, you know, the different things through, that I've dealt with in my life. Nice. And do you work with any other veterans at the moment? Uh, not at the moment. Um, definitely loosely, con we're all connected with each other. It's mm -hmm. like we're, we have our own network family because yes. once you separate from the military, everybody talks about like that separation anxiety mm -hmm. from no longer being a part of that cohort, that, that cohesive unit. And um, the veteran farming network is nationwide. 
And so even though I don't necessarily have my military unit, I have my veteran unit. Nice. And and there are times when I have issues with plants or things that come up, and I'll reach out to somebody in that veteran network. Um, so, you know, I did uh, my internship at Ouroboros Aquaponic Farms was um, provided by the Farmer Veteran Coalition, uh, and that was a paid internship. And then in addition to prior to going to that, I was in Denver at the um, Veterans to Farming Training Program, Controlled Environment Training Program. And through doing each of these training programs, I've met veterans along the way. And so those veterans, we've become our own you know, unit of people. And you, yeah. know, you, see, you see what's going on at their farm on Facebook and you know, somebody's greenhouse gets blown over. And you know, you're, it, it's, it's really nice because uh, to be an, uh, a farmer in Los Angeles, there really isn't that much of a network. You know, yeah. but to have like veterans that you know they understand what it means to put on a headlight at two o'clock in the morning and fix your greenhouse because you're a soldier <laughs> and that's it blew over, and, <laughs> it, it blew over and we're gonna do it right now. Right. Um, so it's it's really been a, a really nice thing to have that that broader network and um, you know Farmer Veteran Coalition does a stakeholders conference every year. And so that's one of the times where a lot of veteran farmers get together. So that's almost like my family reunion oh, in nice. some ways because there's veterans that I only see once a year mm-hmm. and I see them at that conference. And um, so, yeah, it's, its, own, it's got its own camaraderie. Very cool. Now, you, you said you've transitioned away from growing microgreens, but that's how you started. Can you talk about your process for growing microgreens for those? Because I know a lot of people uh, want the nutrient-dense fact, you know, factors about them, and they don't have a lot of room to grow vegetables, so the microgreens win out. What's your, what was your process when you were growing them? Uh, so microgreens are great to grow because they require minimal amounts of space and they have a very fast turnover time. If you're growing commercially, the fast turnover time is a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, right. You have to find a place <laughs> for them, right? Uh, because, you know, you you put some seeds down and they're ready, you know, seven, ten days later for the fastest varieties. And if you're really successful at it, you've got to be growing a lot of it at the same time. So on the back end, there's a lot of man hours uh, for that. But um, with growing microgreens, the main thing to keep in mind is what are the characteristics of the individual seed that you're trying to grow and then mimicking the habitat that those seeds need. So if you're growing multiple varieties at the same time with different needs in the same system, Mm -hmm. it can be quite challenging. So for anyone that's interested in getting into it, I would always say start small and start simple. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I started, I started with just radishes and sunflower. Oh, and, yeah. And Sunflowers are tasty. Exactly. They're tasty. They pop up super fast. They're, they're easy for the learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I kind of built out to over 20 different varieties um, that I was, like I was producing. What? So, like, <laughs> everything from um, the standard, you know, radish mixes to broccoli, microgreens, mm-hmm. which are, you know, super healthy and really popular, um, to, you know, the high-end culinary palate, which was more of, like, red shiso. Okay. And... Um, um, uh, Ethiopian mustard, also known as red giant. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a lot of the the red amaranth was was as another big one that that folks liked a lot. Um, you know, it, it just w- it would depend, and a lot of times what I grew depended on 
what was in season and what people were putting on their plates. Right, at, and at you were time. you were growing for restaurants, right? I was growing for restaurants, and I was selling in the farmers market. Okay, so well. you did have a commercial. I mean, a. a regular direct-to-customer base yes also okay. yes yeah, so. and did, were you growing those microgreens aquaponically or hydroponically or in soil the microgreens were grown hydroponically and in soil oh so they were cultivated in soil 10 20 trays in soil but they were on a flood and drain system a hydroponic flood and drain system okay break that down <laughs> let's talk about that terminology 10 to 20 system yeah. what is that so the if you if you look at a uh, agricultural tray yeah the black trays that you normally grow your stuff in that's that's called a 1020 it's approximately 10 inches by 20 inches oh got it okay and so in those trays, um, when it comes to cultivating microgreens, most times people will either use a synthetic medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, paper towels are the easiest. Uh, you can use cocoa coir, mm-hmm. um, mats. You can use jute, um, which is hemp, um, like or, or burlap. There are tons of different mediums that you can grow on. What I would do is I would take organic soil and hand mix that with perlite and, and uh, peat moss mm-hmm. uh, or Yes, I believe it was peat moss. Peat moss or coir? Coir, I'm sorry. Coir? Uh, it was coir. I, I love coir. Yeah, it was coir. <laughs> so I had this hand blend that I would make, and I would fill the trays with that, and then I would germinate the seeds in that. And the reason why I did it that way was twofold. One, uh, Will Allen, one of my mm, idols. Good old Will uh, Allen. Yes. <laughs> one of, one of my, my idols um, one time told me that he grows in soil yes. in his, aquapon- his aquaponics system. And so, you know, I was like, how are you growing in soil and aquaponics? And so we started talking about that. So when it came time for me to start my operation, I was like, well, Will Allen grows in soil. I'm growing in soil. <laughs> <laughs> do what Will does. Yeah. And then on top of that, the, the greenhouse that I was operating in wasn't climate controlled. And so um, what would happen is because the amount of soil in a tray is only about an inch to inch and a half, Mm -hmm. the heat in the greenhouse would be too much to sustain the plants and they would die off. If if um, if if they were just if they were just planted in say um, on burlap, they would dry out too fast. There would there would be no buffer time. But by growing them in soil, that created a little bit of buffer zone because the moisture would still stay. Mm-hmm. And so it added that benefit. And then also what I would do is when I took it to market, I would harvest that market. Right. And you bring the trays and cut in front of people. I would cut right in front of people. Yeah. And so that would allow for transport to market. So if I if I had harvested everything first thing in the morning before going to market, the transport to market, you know, whatever climate issues were going on yeah. for the day would affect the trays and affect my, my sales for the day. Uh, so growing in soil in a hydroponic system created a little bit more work on the cleanup side because of the residue but um overall it was the best situation to do it so the hydroponic part was the irrigation system that fed the that watered the the soil trays Mm -hmm. and what what did that look like so that was a um a 60 foot by four foot flood and drain table oh so the seed trays are sitting in a trough yes and yeah. you'd flood the trough, and then it would drain off. Yes. 
and that's it. Yep, it was on. A, it was on a time. It was a timed system, and uh, depending on the season, multiple times a day, it would flood the table, and it would flood for maybe five, ten minutes, whatever it took for the water level to get to where it needed to. Mm-hmm. It shut off, and then all the water would wick out. And then just the moisture would be would re- retain would in the soil. In the soil. And so for people who are doing this at home, and you consult mm-hmm. for, I assume. Well, I should ask: Are you consulting for homeowners as well as commercial properties or or commercial businesses? So um, it's for me. It's been a lot more in the wheelhouse of consulting startups. Okay. Um, the part of Westside Urban Gardens that does backyard farming mm-hmm. is still alive and kicking right. and, and growing and so in that sense, yes, absolutely um, homeowners as well as, as okay. commercial um, but my I think my skill set where I, I apply it the most is on the commercial scale okay. um, that was the way I geared my internship when I was at Ouroboros Aquaponic Farms is I walked in and I said, hey Ken I want, I want to run an, an aquaponic farm myself I need to know everything that there is to know about owning and operating an aquaponic, commercial aquaponic farm. Right. And um, so that's the skill set, and anything under that is applied, just able to apply that knowledge. Right. So. so for home gardeners or home sprouters, mm-hmm. as we'll call them, uh, they could just maybe, what what would they do at home to do the drain and the, the flood and flood drain, drain method? What would that look like? Well, that would be that would be a little bit more challenging. There's a little bit of engineering involved <laughs> in it. Um, so essentially, you would need a reservoir with water. You'd need a, you'd need a way to, so the, uh, you know, the interest, the, the easiest way to, dis- to, to explain how to do this would be to go to, to, to your local hydro store, lo- local hydroponic store. Uh-huh. They have flood and drain systems oh. or pieces that you can get. To components. Components small. to build your own flood and drain. Okay. And you would literally use that because most people are using it for, for cannabis grows, but you just apply the same technology to growing your, your, uh, your microgreens. Okay. But if I wanted to, say, get a Rubbermaid tub or, you know, like a two-by-three-foot cement trough from Home Depot, mm-hmm. and I, if I put my, my seed tray in there, filled it with water, and then took it out, would that be sufficient or oh, what yeah. would I need to do to, yeah. to do it that way oh no that would that would absolutely that would absolutely be a, a, a good way to do it yeah uh, because so exactly the the 1020 trays they make two varieties two main varieties of yeah them. they either have slots slots on the bottom or they don't for drainage or not for drainage or for not got it so uh, easy hack for that would be to when you're getting your your 1020 tray buy two or three 1020s that are slotted okay and then get one that isn't slotted ah and then so that way you have your reservoir to, to dunk it in um and that would be probably the easiest way to do it okay is, is just you know get the second part of the 1020 cool. um and and this is just me thinking on the fly so if that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> always experimenting yeah. uh, so if that doesn't work then the next thing would be like you said get you know one of those like rubbermaid tray t- tubs that are maybe like I don't know, maybe six inches deep mm-hmm. and you know wide and, and long enough to fit the ten twenty and your hands and just dunk, dunk it in, in. Um, until you up until the point where you see the moisture raised to the top of the soil level if okay. you're using soil and then pull it out because what you don't want to do is completely flood the tray. Yeah, you don't want all your soil floating it, out you, of your tray. You don't want your soil to, to float out your tray and then also your seed distribution on your tray needs to be even. Ah, so if you 
put too much water in it when you lift it up the seeds might slip around and then you have to you'll spend 10 minutes trying to spread your seeds out uh, and wonder why what you're doing with your life yeah well it has to be easier than sprouting in uh, out of out you know how there are sprouting kits that Mm -hmm. are like stacking they look like those bamboo steamer Mm -hmm. trays but they're clear usually plastic and i find you know or i've done it in a mason jar and it's just so labor intensive it just isn't worth it you know right so so now that's the interesting thing because with that that's sprouting versus micros yeah so with with sprouts it's super super labor intensive yeah with with microgreens since you're not worried about eating the root mass there's a little bit more of a barrier level to as far as bacteria goes okay and so it's not as labor intensive right as. you don't have to worry about the pathogens not in the same way not yeah. in the same way i mean on operating at the commercial scale i still took precautions as if i were growing sprouts uh-huh. but when you're growing microgreens you definitely don't need uh, the same level, like with with sprouts, you're rinsing them twice a day, and Blah. you're making sure they're getting enough oxygen, <laughs> and you're smelling the container to make sure nothing's gone wrong. Yeah. With microgreens, you can just eyeball it and see if there's a problem, and um, you know it's it's a it's, the learning curve is easier. Right. So. Okay. So that's really hopeful. Uh, now you are you've been talking about hydroponics and aquaponics. Can you describe the difference between the two for those who are not familiar? Sure. So hydroponics. Uh, and aquaponics are two cultivation methods that are water-based instead of being soil-based. So um, it's the difference between growing something in the ground in your garden versus growing the plants with direct contact, with regular direct contact with water. So with a hydroponic system, you are adding all the the nutrients by hand so Mm -hmm. it's synthetic nutrients even if it's organic you're mechanically adding the nutrients to the water testing the water levels for ph level the ph and and, uh, the different nutrient levels Um, but at the end of the day you still have to add that nutrients to it aquaponics is the next step from there instead of having to add into the nutrients now you have live fish living in one tank and you're feeding those fish the excrement from the fish comes out as ammonia and the ammonia goes through a process and turns into nitrogen and now you have a a natural food source for your plants Uh, it turns out to be 90 percent less water usage than soil-based farming and the reason for that is because <clears throat> the only water that's taken up out of the system is lost through evaporation and transpiration through the plants. So you're not, you know, the water isn't draining off into your soil and then back into the ground. Uh, it's a semi-closed loop system. It wouldn't be completely closed loop because at some point you have to make up for that 10% yeah. water loss. And you do have to give the fish some food. You got to feed the fish. <laughs> yeah. You got to feed the fish. And, and that's, that's wonderful because the... You know, the reduced amount of inputs means you're as close to a closed-loop system as possible. Yes, yeah. It's about as close to nature as you can get. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's an interesting way to grow because it humbles you when it comes to looking at nature. When you try to mimic nature, it humbles you. <laughs> yeah, I always say nature always wins, it does. you know, and it's every time we think we have the upper hand, she just slaps us across and the laughs. face. <laughs> Throws her head back and guffaws. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, well, now you bring up an interesting point because there was a big kerfuffle, and I think there still continues to be one, over the USDA organic uh, certification of hydroponics, which yeah. uses synthetic nutrients, which 
technically can't be organic. So how do you, well, I don't know. What's your feeling about this? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting argument, and I'm, I'm kind of loosely following it, uh-huh. you know, because I don't want to get emotionally involved uh-huh. in it. <laughs> but so the, the, the interesting thing is there are organic hydroponic nutrients, but it's a nightmare for the system. It clogs up the system. It's a nightmare. So, yes, technically you can have an organic hydroponic system, but it's not going to be worth it for the man hours you're spending keeping it up and running. Right. Um, now, the other side of it is there's, it's been such a challenge getting aquaponic systems certified organic, even though it's as close as it is to Nate. Yeah, and that should be allowed to be certified organic, whereas hydroponic, I don't think it should. It's That's a little me. iffy. It's a little yeah. iffy. But with aquaponics, the argument is the crops are coming in contact with animal waste. Ah. And so the, the issue with that that makes me scratch my head is like, well, field-based crops are coming in contact with some sort right. of nutrients. So what's yeah. the difference here? It's composted, I guess, is the only is the difference. If you're using raw animal waste, then that's sewage sludge, and that's right. where we get all the E. coli breakouts and all of that stuff. Right. But with fish, it's not the case. It, with fish, it's not the case because this is not harvested fish. Yeah. You know, these are live fish, and um, the pathogen loads aren't the same as, as what you would see you know, if you were at like a fish farm, you have the, the, the quality that you have to maintain to keep the whole system, the whole ecosystem running mm-hmm. demands that you have like the utmost uh, sanitation in your system. Right. It just won't, it, the system won't run <laughs> right, if, right. if it's not sanitary. Yeah. So. Now, you, you did say that you're um, not harvesting the fish. So I know some aquaponics people who do so they're they're getting a double crop out of whatever they're growing right yeah and so that's yeah what i mean by that is if you're just operating from the aquaponic standpoint of not harvesting your fish then uh-huh. there's there's no real issue oh, okay um and if even if you are harvesting your fish harvesting your fish and you're doing it at a commercial scale you already have to have the um infrastructure for a commercial kitchen for commercial cleaning so you can't just say okay i'm gonna start an aquaponic operation and then sell fish because you're gonna have health department regulations that you have to deal with i hadn't Uh, thought of that so it's a it's a it's an added thing that like okay all of these things are naturally built into this process the the uh, margin of error is different Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, there are people that will harvest out their fish. When it comes to the business planning side of it and the numbers of it, it becomes an issue of what your goal is. If your goal is to harvest out as many fish as possible, then you're putting in more fish food. So you have to account for the the extra implements that you're putting in. Yeah. If you're pro- if your your goal is only to provide nutrients for your plants and that's your main crop then it's less implements that you need because the plants only need so much fertilizer. So as long as your fish density is such that it will maintain your crops, you only need to feed them what they need in order to thrive. You're not just feeding them to grow out. Uh, But if you are feeding them to grow out, that's a different cost. And especially if you're using organic fish food versus regular fish food, that's an additional cost. Right, Um, which fish food, I've come to learn, is the, the... at least the fish food that is being fed to the fish in our national parks 
is genetically is using genetically engineered ingredients, ah. and so he, I know, like, ah, I can't get away. You like want to go into the into the wild and fish for your own livelihood, and you're still bringing GMOs home with you. So you can really, I guess, it's really important to use. Not I guess I would say it's really important to use non-GMO fish fish food for your aquaponic uh, setup. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I mean. And even though um, it's challenging to get an organic certification, my rule of thumb is to just use all organic practices. Yeah. And just keep it as easy as simple. That way you don't have to remember anything. You just know that everything that you're doing is, is above board. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, fish food is, is something that can be costly because if you are buying, you know, 60-pound bags of fish food and... You're, even if you're getting them at seventy dollars a bag, mm-hmm. um, that's an, that's a cost yeah. that that you know aggregates over a year. And if you are not really, if you don't really have a good game plan and you're just feeding the fish because you're like they keep eating, so I'm going right. to keep feeding them, <laughs> you might be out of an extra thousand dollars at the end of the year. And if you're a small scale farm, we we know that it takes anywhere from three to five years for you to be cash positive. You don't really have a thousand dollars to be throwing right. away. Oh, so. interesting. And so you've been helping businesses of all sizes do this I, I have, kind of work? I have. Um, I've worked with startups and also uh, like star- startups that are working on product development and then also um, other veterans that have, have uh, wanted to go into ag and start their own aquaponic operations. Um, and so now I'm leaning more into the commercial sector outside of the, the, veteran, the vet- veteran network. Cool. All right, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip about anything that we've talked about or haven't talked about that you would like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Oh, let's see. I have tons of tips, but um, <laughs> I think the one that is going to be the most interesting is is related to my avocado tree that is really thriving. Oh, goody. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that if it wasn't your tip. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so a lot of times with uh, the soil... Um, as we were talking about earlier when, when I was showing you around, a lot of times with avocados, the tips of the leaves will turn brown and burn up. And that's related to salt in, in the soil and um, the nutrient load not being quite right. Well, here what we have is an underground um, water system. And so all of we have a gray water system, so our the water from the washing machine, my, all the water from my tiny home, my shower, sink in the bathroom, sink in the, in the kitchen, all go to this underground system and deep water the plants. So um, my, my tip for avocados to, to keep them looking all lush and green is deep water. So what does that look like if you can't dig up your entire backyard and install this deep infrastructure? Uh, at least once a week, do a deep water on, on the avocado, and, and that'll help offset. And so what does that look like as far as, you know, time? Do you turn, if you would turn a hose on, or how many gallons, or what does that look like? So... Um, it's hard to say for each individual, but and it's hard because like I know it for myself. Right. I know it when I see it. Yeah. But what it looks like is um, when you're watering the base of, of the tree, you want to see how much water is actually being absorbed. Mm-hmm. So if you get to the point where the water is just running down from where the tree is and not really you know uh, adhering into the ground, then okay, that's too much water. 
Um, it's not something where you just want to take a two and a half gallon jug and, mm -hmm. you know, sprinkle around the base of the tree. That's not enough water. Got it. Uh, this is more along the lines of like, you know, maybe 60 seconds if, if the ground will support it, uh, of just straight water hose into the, into the, uh, base of the tree. And, um, definitely something that you want to do closer to the morning. You don't want to do it close in the evening because then you kind of, you can open yourself up to pathogens. Um, so you definitely want to do it in the morning. Um, if it's not a new tree, you can do it at the heat of the day. It's not going to affect the tree. But if it's a fresh tree, you definitely don't want to shock it and, um, you know, give it water yeah. middle of the day. And do you use any nutrients uh, around this tree as well? Yes, yes. Uh, so we have a composting system here. And um, a few times a year, I'll dress it with compost. Uh, and so what that looks like is taking, you know, um, maybe about a gallon of compost. You know, I have a, you know, one of those five gallon buckets so actually it's probably about two gallons okay. worth of compost so about half of a, a Lowe's size bucket uh -huh. and I'll dress around the, or the tree with that and then I'll take um, a rake and then kind of knead it get it into the soil so a little scratch bit scratch it in scratch it in just a little bit uh -huh. and um, and then water around the tree and and you know you do that a few times a year and it it, it thrives the other thing is just pay attention to what the leaves are doing because they'll tell you you yeah. know, if, if the leaves are starting to, to, to change color in a way that doesn't quite look right or if they start to pale, then the easiest thing to do is just Google that exact plant. Mm -hmm. And it's the, it, it, this is what I've done, learned to do myself is just Google avocado with, with nutrient deficiency. Show yeah. me the leaves. <laughs> and right. then you got a whole page of everything that could be wrong. Okay, well, it's a potassium issue. So then you address that. Yeah. Um, so got that it. would be my tip. Okay, that's a really good tip. And I, I love that you have, you've got these, the purple... Uh, gray water, you know, what are those valves? They're not valves. Uh -huh. They are valves. Yeah. And around each of the trees. And so there, where, where is the, uh, how far down is the tubing that's delivering this irrigation to them? The tubing is about, it's about two feet down. Okay. So that is yeah. deep. Yeah. It's right down there. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much for that fabulous tip, Nate. And thank you for being on the Garden Nerd Podcast. Well, thank you for having Thank you for coming to join me in my backyard. Yeah, <laughs> sure. How do people find you? Uh, you can find me online uh, on my website at uh, Westside Herbs. So it's Westside U-R-B-S instead of herbs. So with clever. H. So clever. <laughs> Westsideherbs.com. And then you can also find me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at... At Westside Herbs, U R B S, and I'm also on Facebook as well at yeah. Westside Herbs. And are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I am. I'm still trying to understand what <laughs> the tweet is. What Twitter for, is no, all I, about? No, I get it, but as far as what I do with my everyday, it doesn't. I, I don't use it as much as I should. Okay, so you're let, mostly Facebook and mostly Instagram. Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Are the best ways to find me. All right. Awesome. Well, that's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatever they're calling it these days or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff at Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!